Hello everybody and welcome to this 12th episode of Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church with Nick and Mary Franks. This is the first time we've done two in a week and if you listen to last week's, this week's episode, I'm getting confused myself, um, the one from, from earlier today, um, stroke two days ago when you come to listen to this on Sunday, could I have made that any more difficult to understand? Um You'll have heard anyway that we're doing two a week now, and that is because we don't want teaching the teaching to be kind of intermittent or sporadic. We want it to be um, prioritized, basically. We want it to be consistent and thorough, and we want momentum with it. It's, it's. I think this is part of the community values that we talked about in the podcast from Friday, the, when we talk about the Jesus come up and so on, just the way that we want... Um, our longing for Jesus to mean that we are in Scripture in a new kind of way, in in the sense of not just our daily devotionals, but really studying, digging into the Scriptures and doing that individually in our homes, of course, but then doing that in a community um, as well, I think just adds a, a new measure, a new degree of momentum. Um, there's so much in the Bible, isn't there? There is so much in the Course. What a familiar thought that it's living and active. It's a living supernatural word. And we're going to look at that in a minute in this passage today. But anyway, all that to say, there is so much more for us to learn and not just head knowledge. We're going to come to that as well. But just this, the way that we begin to feel that incarnate um, reality of the of the living word of God in our minds, not even just about Bible memorization, but just that the word begins to be the way that we think and and you know and it's part that's obviously John 1 and um the actual incarnation as it were of Christ within us that that mystery of Jesus himself via his word becoming you know it's Galatians 2 and if I no longer live but Christ lives in me and he lives in us by his spirit and by his word anyway so um this week we're going straight into the third session of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians for the rest of this year at least. Um, and that's cool. And by the end of that we'll have a, a much clearer understanding of of the book. So this is the third session. If you've not listened to the first two episodes, um, I'd encourage you to do that um, for obvious reasons. The first episode is really verses 1 through to 10. And then that verse 10 bridges into the second episode, uh, second teaching session, which is verses 10 through to 17. And so today we want to pick up on verse 18 through to the end of the chapter, which is 31. So this is um, a larger number of texts and sorry, a a larger number of verses. So bear with me. Um, There's a lot to go through here and I'll just make sure that we do it thoroughly as well as um, keeping it to a reasonable length. So with your Bible in hand, let's go into verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1 and read to the end of the chapter. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness 
of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as usual, let's go through each of these verses um, as much as we can in the time that we have. Uh, I won't recap on the previous two episodes to save time, but if you remember when we finished the last session and we came to verse 17, we began to almost see a, a kind of hazy outline of the cross as we come to this section now on Paul's dealing with um, the whole issue of wisdom and foolishness, strength and strength and weakness, and um, just as a as a if you look at verse seventeen, so for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we came to that verse last time. It was beginning just to almost like coming up a hill and being able to see the top of the of the cross at a blind summit or something. Um, so here we are then in verses 18. Um, it's this whole thing of foolishness versus power. What does Paul say? For the message of the cross is foolishness. So the message of the cross in, in the ESV, it would be the word of the cross. And that's really specifically the whole thing of preaching. Paul said in the previous verse that he'd not come to baptize, but that Christ had sent him to preach. And this is what he'd been sent specifically to preach. It's the message or the word or the sermon, if you like, of the cross. And that that particular message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God, and so in that very in, in the verse, the very first verse of this section, you see these realities pitted against each other of foolishness and wisdom, weakness and power. And of course, what constitutes each of those polarities? What what constitutes each of those two bookends? Either foolishness or wisdom, weakness or power or strength, is based on whether or not you're perishing or whether you're being saved. I think of uh, 2 Corinthians 2.14 when Paul talks about um, the whole thing of the, f- the the procession of Christ, that we're being led in triumphal procession in Christ, and that to those who are being saved, we are the fragrance of life, and to those who are perishing, we are the fragrance of death. So this 
at, at the very at this very first verse we introduce Paul's introducing a countercultural way of thinking which is of course the 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 way of the kingdom um the foolishness versus power um what does it say in Romans 1:16 where Paul writes to Rome and he says that the gospel we're not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation and of course the gospel is synonymous there for those who are being saved for for believers and not for those who are perishing those and of course we're beginning already in this first thing to touch on the mystery the utter mystery of predestination and doctrines surrounding election and so on and that we're not going to go into that now but suffice to say predestination and election is very clear particularly the book of uh, beginning of Ephesians and so on we maybe we'll go into that um but the whole thing we're not supposed to, I don't think we're supposed to go off tangent here at this point we think we think we're supposed to uh bask in that that miracle and the blessing of knowing that we are being saved and that as such we aren't supposed to fit into this world we're not supposed to fit into this world's way of thinking and the values of this world and and so on so this word of the cross this message of the cross is to us who are being saved it's the power of god and um the verse 19 for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligence of the intelligent i will frustrate and here we are paul's uh kind of expert ancestral jewish ancestral knowledge of the old testament comes into play by his his as you imagine the, the extent to which he would have known this this uh, book of isaiah so this is paul quoting from isaiah 29 and it's important to have a study bible if you're going to study the bible it sounds obvious doesn't it but um looking at isaiah 29 this morning i just thought okay well let's go to isaiah 29 because it's important we, we've got the overall context here of 1 Corinthians we understand that Paul's writing to this church in Corinth and it's a church that's in Corinth the church of God in Corinth and yet and yet he's addressing the fact that so much of Corinth itself seems to have got into the church of God which is never supposed to be the case and all the divisions and all the stuff that we've talked about in the previous two post uh, episodes but here we are this is the, this is the big scope the context and so now wisdom and um, foolishness, weakness and power, power of the, of the gospel, those who are being saved and those who are perishing, so on. That's the context, but <clears throat> excuse me, Isaiah 29 really is where Paul is thinking, and, and that's where we're going to go now. And I want to just read this, uh, not in its entirety again for time, but I want to read the first little bit because it helps to just imagine the type of people, the historical context um, in terms of the future appearing of Jesus when he comes, when Jerusalem as a city is besieged, and we're going to come to that just now. So it's this, it's all of this context is living dynamically within the mind of Paul as he's writing this first letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus. But he's doing it with, I think, a knowledge of the Old Testament and a knowledge of these prophets that we don't really have. And so it would be foolish, talking of foolishness, it would be foolish not to go into this in some depth now. Um, So flick to Isaiah 29, which is where Paul is just quoting from. Uh, Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, that's Jerusalem, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. 
yet I will besiege Jerusalem. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you all around. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. Verse 5. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise. Sounds a bit like Psalm 18 to me if you check that out as a cross-reference. With windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. It also sounds like Exodus 19, by the way. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Jerusalem, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night, as when a hungry man dreams that he is eating, but he awakens and his hunger remains. When a thirsty man dreams that he is drinking, but he awakens faint with his thirst unquenched. So it will be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. So Paul is talking to the Corinthians here about this issue of uh, what what really does constitute weakness and strength and power and so on. And this is what his, is in his mind. It's the again. It's the end of the age. It's fascinating, isn't it? We said already. We said in the first episode this link between the gifts of the Spirit. The coming of Jesus, the second coming of, of the Lord Jesus, and true unity around around the church in, in the church as it as we're prepared for His return, and here here is this um, insight in a sense a kind of kind of forward thought to what it will be like at the end of the age when Jerusalem, as the city as it is now, is surra- surrounded. Whether that's through um, whether they're surrounded, it'll be a coalition of sorts. It'll probably be the likes of Turkey and Iran and so on. But it's the nature of the person that Paul is talking about here. So we'll come back to that in a minute when I make some other points from from this chapter and from verse 4 in particular. But what does is, what is Paul go on to say is that he's he's referring to this whole issue of humility and that real wisdom and real power is found in the place of humility voluntary humility unlike the way of the world and we we should so be aware of that shouldn't we um mary and i we went to oxford a few years ago and i remember being there for the first time it was this kind of like i just really didn't like being there it's it's obviously a world renowned city um most famous for university life and student life and learning and everything that goes on with that type of culture. But I just remember being struck as we walked around the city by these big heads, like these stone statues that formed part of the kind of well-known architecture of the city. But just big heads everywhere, you know, just and it was just this sense of the city being really quite impressed of itself. You know, people walking around thinking, gosh, I'm studying at Oxford. I, you know, and... Or I live in Oxford, or I lecture and, and teach in Oxford, or whatever. It's just this self sense of self importance and pride. You know, these big heads everywhere were, were not lost on me as we walked around, and I just thought, gosh, this is this is a situation really that Paul is talking about into the, both the Jewish and the 
the, the Greek context. You know, the, the Jews demanded a sign as we're about to see. Let's go to that verse now, actually. So verse 19. Um, so yeah, we're in verse 19, and that's really just a quote I've just read from verse um, 14 of Isaiah 29. And then in verse 20... Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? And this is what I'm saying about Oxford. It's like this. You can imagine the Corinthian situation where all these guys who were considered wise, you know, and it, this isn't just like some kind of gifted university students appeared on University Challenge with Jeremy Paxman. This is like a way of life. This is this is like, you know, when Jesus was teaching about fasting and prayer and, you know, talking about the Pharisees who like to go into the marketplaces and parade their fast like a like a sham. This is where is the when Paul says here in verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this is of this age? I kind of have this impression of them all sat around on these long, wide, steep steps that go up to the temple or or to the pharisaical um, courts of debating or the synagogues or whatever, just this kind of like lounging around in wide flowing robes and, you know, just, (laughs) right then, chaps, Um, what have we got on the order for today? And then it's just this pride, it's human pride and arrogance. And I find just on a, on a textual level, if you think back to the other verses earlier in the chapter where Paul was addressing the whole thing of cult celebrity following in, in verse 14 where Paul says, I'm sorry, in verse 13, Paul just fires off this trio of questions, if you remember. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? So this reminds me, and again, we'll see that at the end of this chapter, but in verse 20, this kind of like, a, again, a trio of questions. It's just a Pauline style of thinking and writing to address what he's trying to address for the sake of building up the church. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? They're rhetorical questions, but of course that's to challenge directly the whole pride in in rhetoric in in that in rhetoric that was going on in this um post-hellenistic um period has has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world verse 21 um god's wise order is not our own and of course this is where we begin to just have a sense of the mystery and the otherness of god and that the way that god works is so different to the way that humans work. The way that God thinks is so different to the way that we think. What does it say in Isaiah 55 verse 9? That his His ways are higher than our ways, so much higher. And um, Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Um, what does it say in Isaiah 55? Let's just get that right, because I don't like paraphrasing paraphrasing wrongly. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so there's this, there's this sense of God just kind of emerging into this scene in Corinth, where these... Uh, the general, the general values, societal values, were on these kind of like just the just the, pro, the human pride. And we're going to see that end, the end of that, the ultimate end of that, in just a minute. Um, 
But if you if you read on now, let's just read after these questions. And Paul is, is kind of like rhetorically asking, where are all these guys? Where are all these wise men, these philosophers and so on? He comes back to the question really about um, the, the issue of faith. So in verse 20, after these fired questions, Paul wants to then say, um, as a classic example there, then of the kind of re- the rhetoric, the rhetorical type of questions that would have been the pride of the... Of the culture, Paul says, the second half of verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. Of course he has. And for for the believers, those who are being saved, of course, that is a rhetorical question. But for those who are perishing, for the for the unbelieving Jews and Greeks, you know, that it wasn't a rhetorical question. They would has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? They would you can just imagine them sat there thinking about it, trying to work it out. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So here we have this big focus again. It's such a, it's, it's, it's the whole thing of um, the blindness that you think of these Jews and Greeks being just completely covered in, just like the, it's like the Gospel of John, that sleepy spiritual blindness that goes through the whole of the book of John. Here we have these guys who can't see the the real realities, despite their intellectual abilities, despite the strength and speed of their mind, despite the thoroughness of their ancestral training and re- and 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 um, being raised and so on. Despite all of that, they couldn't see because they didn't believe. They weren't familiar. They didn't have a sense of faith. Um, so it comes back to God's pri- God's priority of faith and that belief, not wisdom, is synonymous with salvation. What does it say in verse 21? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was to save those who believe, not save those who could work it out, not save those who had good oratory ability. We know that Paul, in, in just a minute, when we come on to next week's Paul, he came without eloquence or superior wisdom. He came in much trembling. So it's not that. Um, so that's that's the point of, that Paul's making here is that church, you are in Corinth. Church, Corinth is not in you. You're from another world. You're aliens. You're sojourners. You're passers through. Um, Verse 22 and verse 23, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But we preach Christ crucified. What a nonsense. And again, this is important for us just to get a bit more au fait and comfortable in thinking what it was like in AD 55 when Paul was writing this letter, is that the thought thinking of, of of the concept of the messiah okay what what did the what did the messiah what did the messiah look like in the mind of the jews and the greeks or particularly the jews what you know the sense of a savior what what did what did he look like well certainly not the words of later on in isaiah where isaiah says that jesus was mauled beyond human likeness he was so badly disfigured and beaten. Such was the extent of his suffering that he wasn't even recognisable as a as a man. That image of a, of a lamb that was slain. 
And that's, that is the last thing that the Jews would have expected a Messiah to look like. And indeed, thinking of Deuteronomy 21, 23, where it says that cursed is he who hangs on a tree. The whole concept of a saviour, a holy saviour, hanging on a tree was was just a complete non-starter. There's this sense of, and of course we know theologically, that Jesus was on the tree fulfilling that verse in Deuteronomy because he was the propitiation for our sins. He became sin. He became the curse for us to deliver us. We're going to see the ultimate... Um, the ultimate um, gift of that in a moment. So we preach Christ Christ crucified, a complete nonsense to both Jews and Greeks. And you just hear them saying, don't insult our intelligence. You're not even going to meet me halfway. Like you you Christian um, radical few who want to engage us in debate, Don't, don't even insult our intelligence. That's just like, it's like you can imagine them, like they're not even feeling like they're meeting them halfway because they're being so utterly ridiculous. But what does it say in verse 24? But, there's always buts lurking around or yets in the Bible. But, verse 24, to those whom God has called, by the way, both Jews and Greeks, that's a separate issue to do with election that we'll come to another time, but both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this is... this is Paul again, he's addressing them personally, he's asking them to think about the sense of privilege and the sense of power and the sense of um, security in the knowledge that God has called. He's called these Corinthians, these this, this ragamuffin bunch of misfits into salvation. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of of God and the wisdom of God. A power and a wisdom that the unbelieving Jews and the Greeks, the pagan paganistic world, couldn't see. What a tragedy. We're supposed to feel this, the weight of that, I think, just the, the blindness to, it's not an alternative power or an alternative, this is the ultimate power and wisdom. Um... The power, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And of course, anything without Christ is the power and wisdom of God is, is death, it's hopelessness, it's vanity, it's pointlessness. You might as well just shoot yourself in the head and it's like, without Christ there is no hope. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Um, I find verse 5 is a little bit like, 20, 25, sorry, is a, is a bit of a kind of... Um, It's a little bit of a summary of the previous seven verses. So what does it say? For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In one sense, that's a kind of a brief summary, a succinct, condensed summary of the previous seven verses. Um, again, it's, it's, it's for us to just reflect on the way that God is different to us, the way that he thinks, the way that he functions and so therefore are we supposed to be in the midst of the corinths of this world we're not supposed to uh, approach god in the way that they did we're not supposed to uh, approach unsaved people with that sense of pride or um, whatever 
And it's interesting in verse 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble. I find it interesting that it's worth just making the obvious point. Paul is addressing them as brothers. You know, he's making that point that these other guys are not brothers. They're not in the family of God. And yet he's wanting them to remember the time when they weren't. You know, that whole thing of Ephesians 2, 15, when it, and it conjures images of in our minds of being in the world without hope. You know, we do have hope. We're not perishing. That's the whole point. We're the ones that are being saved. This is, in one sense, crudely as it may sound, this is the worst as it gets for us. But for, for those who are perishing, this is as good as it gets. Um, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Remember the time when you didn't. Remember the height from which you have fallen, in the words of John in Revelation. Um not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. This is an insight into the kind of demographic of the church in Corinth. That There may have been a few people from nobility. There may have been a few people who were influential. But largely, largely it would seem that the church was comprised of people from different walks of life. And I think there's a point to make here about the gospel, which is that is there, is there a point here being made in terms of the proliferation of the gospel when Paul started to go on his missionary journeys and he started to see out outside of Jerusalem um, in, in his various different missionary journeys and he started to see the impact of the gospel in different demographic places places that weren't as wealthy places that weren't as well educated and people starting to just the, the news about Jesus the resurrected king the one who was who was, who was left the grave, the one who God raised from the dead, that's what Paul says. That message, that gospel, this word of the cross, that's what we're talking about, started to just spread, in a sense, not hindered by the learning and education and the pride of places like Oxford, or as it would seem, indeed, in Corinth itself, um, or in Antioch, in Syria, wherever Paul went, and there was this kind of headquarters of human learning which was just topsy-turvy opposed to the kingdom let's just go back into Isaiah 29 because I want to make this point to highlight this thing about human pride versus um, humility which is really the whole point of this passage here and I think again Paul's addressing these divisions in the church and the need for our humility with each other and our love for each other not to accommodate things that are, we've said this before, not to accommodate things that are false and erroneous, but but to bear with each other one in love. That whole thing of Galatians 1.6, restoring each other with gentleness and, and patience. But let's just look at Isaiah 29. So again, this is the main prophetic passage that's in Paul's mind as he's writing um, these verses in 1 Corinthians 1. And I want to just focus on verse 4 for a minute here. So he's describing those within Jerusalem so it's kind of it's it's kind of a bit confusing because in one sense the Lord is speaking to his people and in another sense he's speaking to those whom will come against his people but in verse 4 the principle is let's listen to this language and again this would have been in, in Paul's mind as he was writing brought low you will speak from the ground so that's the first thing you 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 will you brought you will be brought low and you you will speak from the ground the second thing is that your speech will mumble out of the dust. 
Third thing is that you, your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. And then the fourth thing, so there's four things in this fourth verse. The fourth thing is out of the dust, your speech will whisper. And if you think of figures in history now, okay, so like President Erdogan of Turkey, who's very, very, if you do some research on this, you'll see he's very uh, clearly trying to restore and reestablish a an Islamic caliphate, caliphate, um, from Turkey and throughout that region, destabilizing certain areas for that gain and reinstituting certain laws and even um, claiming old buildings that was done in the last few months during lockdown. Um, think about figures like that now or um, the Assad regime in Syria, which is all part of the same thing, um, or the Iranian regime. This, the pride, okay, this is what I'm trying to trying to say, is the pride and the, the, the just there's no awareness of Jesus. Of course there isn't. These are the guys who are perishing. Um, their day is going to come, and and this the, these verses here paint such a this verse in particular these four images paint such a vivid picture of the ultimate end, and folly of human pride and weakness. We talk we talk a lot about pride today in in the context of sexuality and inclusion and equality and everything else, but the the fundamental pride. I think it's Spurgeon that said that if there's one thing that we shouldn't be, it's proud. We've got nothing to be proud about. Um, And yet there are many in the world who are anti-Christ and these uh, big global leaders, think of Vladimir Putin in Russia as well, and even some of the leaders closer to home. In one sense, the general flavour of leadership is one of pride, isn't it? How often, how rarely do you hear a prime minister stand up and say, just want to apologize we got this wrong we could have done better really appreciate i personally need to take responsibility you know you never hear that it's just this just this pervasive sense of pride but here we are in verse 4 of isaiah 29 but there's going to be this ultimate bringing low so that these people who now are speaking with such lies and it's just the voice of the enemy, isn't it? Again, if you go to, I think it's Isaiah 14, where the enemy is pictured as coming out with this list of boasts. I will do this, I will do that, I will rise up to be like God, and blah, 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 blah. It's just this that kind of proud, arrogant, lofty speech. What does it say? Well, God says you're going to be brought low. You're going to speak from the ground. Your Your speech will mumble out of the dust. You can't help but think of Genesis and... The whole, not only of man being made from dust, 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 you've come and dust, you will return, but also the the curse on the snake, the serpent, who's consigned a miserable life, a miserable existence, crawling around on its belly in the dust. Um, that is ultimately the the end game. <clears throat> excuse me, is the ultimate end game for the enemy himself, but also all those who would not bow to the name of Jesus the, your voice will become ghost-like from the earth out of the dust again there's that dust your speech will whisper it's all this language evoc- evocative of the you know the realm of the dead you know you kind of like vague ethereal um faint hard to discern like you know that the kind of the kind of uh, speech that's being blasted around the world now with microphones and amplifiers and social media and 
limitless financial budgets will one day become like this vague, thin whisper that is barely audible because the end, the end is prophesied. I want to make one more point about this verse 4 in Isaiah 29 here where he's, Isaiah is prophesying, the Lord, sorry, the Lord is saying that your voice, i.e. those who are, who are in rebellion to the Lord, in rebellion to Yahweh, your voice will, will come ghost-like from the earth. Now, if you remember, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago this guy called Michael Gungor, who's a Christian, I don't know what his theology is generally, but anyway, he's a musician. Um, and his album a few years ago is called Ghosts Upon the Earth. Now, I just think it's, it just came to me again this morning as I was looking at this passage, just how interesting that is, that the, the, the creative thought from Michael Gungle's album there is that is asking us to think again about who it is really that the kind of permanent we tend to think of ourselves as the more permanent material fleshy tangible presences on the earth and the spiritual world is this ghostly kind of almost an assumption it's less real um it's less powerful less strong because they you know just the way that ghosts are portrayed and of course, his album is getting people to think again about who are the real ghosts, who, what is really eternal, what is really tangible. And I found it interesting just thinking about that, that again, it's this converse topsy-turvy flipped on its head type reality that Paul's going after here by getting the Corinthians to, to think you are in Corinth. And this is the way that Corinth is always going to be the Corinthians to, to Corinthianize will always mean sexual depravity, sexual excess, but it'll also mean this um, blind spiritual blindness that stops them from coming to see the glory of God in the topsy-turvy world of the cross, the message, the word, the sermon, the preached word of the cross, the message. Um, wh- guys, what, what are the real ghosts? Who are the real ghosts here and who are the real you know what? What is? And it's it's just part of this way that we need to remember to think that the prevailing narratives of this world are actually directly opposed um, to the the coming kingdom and the coming king. Um, I hope that makes sense. It is encouraging. This is not home. This is not where we're supposed to set up camp. This is not where we're supposed to put our feet up. This is a we're we're so we're passing through. We're aliens and sojourners. Let's just finish with. Um, again, Paul's reiteration of this joy in the midst of what is a very difficult, dark city of Corinth is this joy of being called by name for the Corinthians just to remember that however long they've been saved, at whatever point they had their Acts 9 conversion moment. Verse 26 um, says, Brothers, I think not many of you were called, we've done that, sorry. Um, but God, sorry, verse 27, let's do this first. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of, of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. But none of you, when you, when you are called, this is the thing, like you don't need to have attained to some kind of standard in order to be called, in order to be in order to, in order to be what in, to, in order to be saved, brothers, think of you of of what you were when you were called. You were nothing. You were incapable. You were weak. You were foolish. You were in you were in fact an enemy of me. Says 
says God. And yet, even while you were an enemy of me, Paul goes, later goes on to say in Romans, I died for you. I gave my son for you. I made it. And so Paul is, is ultimately leading this chapter to the big thing about what we boast in. Again, thinking of that kind of collection of people on steps with their long flowing robes and waiting for the next day's delightful delectations of debate and discussion and disagreement or whatever. Paul is getting us to think, ah, oh, but but what do we get to really boast? We get to boast in Jesus himself. What does it say? Um, in verse 29 now, Paul finishes with this thing, this consistent message of the gospel in, in the word is to is to warn and to condemn against boasting in self. We've got nothing to boast about. And yet in verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. That's that's the whole point. The way that God has decided to do this, the way that God has decided to display and even perfect his strength is so that no one may boast before him. And verse 30 is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. There's that word wisdom that the that the Greeks were so enamored with and yet couldn't see in the crucified Christ. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Those are the things that the Greeks couldn't see. The unsaved couldn't see. They couldn't see the righteousness of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus and the redemption of Jesus. And they couldn't see their righteousness, their holiness and their redemption. Such is the blinding effect and impact of sin and self-righteousness and self-saving and so on. And then this final thought in verse 31, therefore, as it is written, Paul says, having established that God has done it like this in order that no one can boast in him before him or in his presence. Verse 31, verse 31 therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And although Paul, as I've said, is consistently condemning of the whole thing of boasting, it's interesting that in 2 Corinthians, uh, let's just go to this now quickly and then we'll finish. In 2 Corinthians 12, so just across the page. So 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul says, um, when this is this is Paul having a discourse with the Lord about his thorn in his side and his, the, the Lord's grace is sufficient for him. But Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient, you, for, sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There you go. That's the whole, that's the whole focus of this chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians. Therefore, Paul says, in, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses that Christ's power may rest on me. So, the end of this bit in 1 Corinthians now, right at the end of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying that God has decided to do it like this. He's decided to flip what is weak, what is strong, what is powerful, what is impotent on its head in order that um, those who are perishing would perish in effect. That's a whole thing of predestination, election that we may or may not come to. But those who are being saved, i.e. you and I, the elect, those who are the um, blessed ones in whom is all the gracious ones, in whom all of his delight is, are being saved. That's the whole point, guys. It's it's to wake us up to the joy of the gospel. And that we're not supposed to boast in anything except him. And I love the way that Paul there says, if, what does he say? Let's read it again. 
That is why, for Christ, um, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. All the more gladly. We're supposed to be able to boast not only in Christ, but in our weaknesses. Because why? Be- what for? Because Christ's power therefore rests on him. Verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 12. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We spend so much time trying to be strong. We spend so much time trying to be wise. And yet actually what God is saying is that he doesn't want us to to operate like that. He wants us to operate in the submission and surrender to his strength and his power. Lord Jesus, we want to just want to thank you for your word. We struggle to understand. We struggle to understand, but we, in another sense, see the simplicity of the voluntary place of humility and weakness that we come to when we say, what do I have to do to be saved? Just like Paul did on the, the Acts road just like the converts did in Acts. What do we have to do to receive salvation? Lord, I pray that as we continue to read this book, Lord, that you would allow us to understand what you mean us to understand. And I mean by practical application as well. That we would come to understand the the limit of eloquence and the limit of human learning and wisdom and study and come to understand that you have ordained our weakness to be the place where your own power is made perfect. And we ask you to help us to understand that as we prepare for your return, as we grow in becoming students of your word as true disciples who proclaim boldly in the power of your spirit and see people from all walks of life, Greeks and Jews, come to salvation. Pray in the name of Jesus. Bless your word to our heart now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much guys for listening to this podcast, this teaching series. We trust that it's been a a continuing help as we continue to look at this book of 1 Corinthians. If you guys are interested in reading, related reading, to the book of 1 Corinthians if you're interested in knowing what other books that would be recommended or that we're using or that we've read or that we're reading just drop us a line and we'll make sure that we get that to you as well as always please do take some time to send this podcast to someone if you haven't already it takes just a few seconds to review and rate this podcast for us wherever you listen to it from and we just encourage you as well drop us an email if there's anything anything particularly you want us to focus on or clarify or anything like that we'd love to hear from you have a great week